This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Book Waves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Russell Banks, who died on January 7, 2023, at the age of 82, was a master of long and short-form fiction. In a career that began in 1975 and continued to his death, there were 14 novels, six collections of short stories, two volumes of poetry, and three works of nonfiction. Among his novels were Affliction and The Sweet Hereafter, both of which became critically acclaimed films, plus Continental Drift and Cloud Splitter. His most recent novel, The Magic Kingdom, was published in 2022. In August 2000, my late co-host Richard A. Lupoff and I interviewed Russell Banks in the KPFA studios while he was on tour for his collection of short fiction, The Angel on the Roof. The Sweet Hereafter and Affliction, Russell Banks, both became movies. You said before we went on the air that they kept to the spirit mm-hmm. of the books, even though both directors are very different. You also yeah. said they were shot at about the same time. Right. And they were released, you know, one shortly after the other. Although it took seven years to get Affliction made, and it only took a year and a half to get uh, The Sweet Hereafter made. Uh, for other reasons. But what fascinates me, and and I think may fascinate um, film students in years to come, is that these two auteur-style directors of different generations, Adam McGoyan, a young man in his uh, middle 30s, and Schrader, uh, a man of my generation in his late 50s, both are are schooled, I think, with European films of the 1950s. And in the making of these films, they're both writer-directors, of course, they were shot in Canada, adapted, as I say, novels from the same novelist, and they used the same director of photography, Paul Serassi, shot both films. But when you look at those films, they don't look anything alike. I mean, the lighting and the tone and the color of uh, Sweet Hereafter is so different from the, the dark blue, almost purple coloring of, of, uh, of Affliction and the, the extremity of the weather, you feel the weather is almost a su- part of the subject matter in Affliction, and yet it's just background in, in uh, The Sweet Hereafter. I think that's really revealing about the control that the director has over what ends up on the screen. Yet it's not surprising, having seen both movies on video back-to-back, mm-hmm. that they were adapted from books by the same author. That's, uh, no. Well, that's because they're, I think, that's because, as, as you were saying earlier, they... they are true to the spirit of the books. Uh, Goyen had to do a great deal more inventing because of the form, the difficulty of the form of, uh, of The Sweet Hereafter, the novel. It's, it's four monologues, one after the other, picking up the story and continuing it, and that's an almost impossible form to adapt quickly to film, which requires or seems to require a more fixed point of view. And Affliction, oh, he could take almost directly scene by scene from the novel straight into film. It's linear it's a fixed point of view and so forth that makes it much easier. But even so, the moral center of the novels, both novels get um, held and maintained, I think, um, in both uh, in both films. And that's because the directors were attracted to the movies, the, the books in the first place, not because um, of their cinematic possibilities, but because they shared the moral perspective of the books. I have a theory, I think, that the best films are made by 
people who think the film is about themselves. That in some way, a Goyan, this is a Goyan's film. It's about him. And when he read the book, he thought the book was about him. And I know that's true for Schrader. And Schrader would say so, I think, quite pointedly. But I think it's also true for a writer. Certainly in right. reading your stories, Russell Banks, mm -hmm. the, the stories are all about you. Well, they have to be in some sense. I have to, uh, in each story or novel I write, have to feel something, uh, some mystery, some basic question is being grappled with here. Uh, and it's basic and essential to me personally, not to the world at large or to whoever might end up reading the book, but to me personally. And, uh, yeah, I think that the best fiction is uh, fiction that the writer believes on some ultimate level is um, is about that writer. There's also a certain directness I found in your in your writing, in your storytelling. Mm -hmm. In many writers, there's a a barrier between the author and the reader. No matter how skilled yeah. uh, the writer is, no matter how fine the material is, the reader is still aware that there's some some wall or some distance between that person and me. In reading Russell Banks, I don't detect this at all. It's, it's just like, hey, you know, as we're sitting here, a couple of feet apart, and, and you're just telling me stuff. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? What a miracle that is. <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, it's certainly, probably, I should say, uh, grows out of a sense that I've always had in the telling of stories that I'm uh, performing in a very primitive way, a role that has been around um, as long as human beings have gathered together around a fire and, and tried to keep each other secure and comfortable and talk to each other about what it means to be human. Uh, the storyteller is, is is a member of the tribe in a in a very specific way. I've always felt that was my role um, in 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 telling stories. So that when I am you know spinning a yarn here, I'm not performing. I'm trying to tell the listener, who's first of all myself, and then only secondarily some stranger, um, what I see in the world, what I've I've looked in and looked out and seen. So it's a very intimate, um, but yet nonetheless social activity. I think, and maybe you're picking up on that—that that, that sense that this is a this is a this is a very social act, telling stories, a communal act. There's also a fascinating little essay at the beginning of your new book, at the beginning of *The Angel on the Roof*, uh, about your mother as a storyteller. Do you feel that that somehow is what made you a storyteller? I do now. You know, I didn't for years. Uh, I ne really needed to get to know my mother better uh, than I could as a child or even as a young man. This book is, is a book that put together by a 60-year-old man and, and uh, going back over 37 years of story writing, the earliest story in there I wrote 37 years ago and put together with, uh, with nine stories that I've written in the last year and a half, two years. Um, so I, I do now have this sense that my mother was crucial in uh, forming my desire to tell stories. That's the, the, the introduction, or by way of an introduction that appears at the beginning, describes my mother's strategies for telling stories. She is a compulsive storyteller, and uh, she seems to do two things in her stories that the narrator of the, uh, the opening says, uh, discovers. One is she manages to make manages managed to make me growing up feel as though I was the subject of her stories 
And this, this may relate back to what you were first saying, Richard. I feel when my mother tells me stories that she's telling me a story about me. Uh, even though oftentimes she's not, she's telling me a story about her. And she does this various ways. But one of the ways she did it is, is, was to put famous people in her stories. She's always telling stories about somebody who was famous. But that's just a way of sharing in culture. You know, we both have cultural um, overlap. And so her stories would involve Sonny Tufts, the 1940s film actor <laughs> that she claimed to have gone to high school with and dated and rejected for my father. And... Um, and as it turns out, he never, in fact, did go to high school with her. I went somewhere else. <laughs> the other is about Grace Metallius's principles in the novel Peyton Place, who she claims were at um, our house in New Hampshire on the Christmas Eve that she they, they murdered uh, the uh, father of the girl and buried him in the manure pile and so on. But those are, those are ways of, of being inclusive, of including the listener in the story. And that's, I think, crucial. The Angel on the Roof... Uh, contains, I believe, 33 stories. 31, I think. 31 stories. And these are not arranged chronologically, either in terms of when the stories take place right. or when you wrote them. Uh, you say it in another place that they were arranged in a thematic or dramatic way. Mm -hmm. I'd like you to talk about that arrangement. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I had a slight problem with it, which is I wanted to see the development and the changes in Russell Banks, mm -hmm. and by arranging them that way, I was denied that privilege. Right. And I, um, I meant to. <laughs> I meant to take it away because, uh, in fact, when I went back over the hundreds of stories, well, hundreds, but a hundred and some odd stories that I ended up pulling 22 out of um, to add to the nine new ones, those 22 seemed to me, I could have written those any of those 22 in the last 18 months, uh, I felt. They seemed to um, exist comfortably side by side with the new stories, partly because of, of con continuity of obsession and theme, I suppose. Relation to language, which seems to go back to the best stories of my early years. Um, it's a secure and confident relation to American vernacular English and um, and locale, too. I mean, these are the stories that are located pretty much where I have lived in my imagination most of my life. So finally, chronology and development didn't seem to matter. Um, it might, if someone took the earlier stories that I left out and put them in there, then it might matter. So to me, this is sort of the best of the stories that I wrote. They were also revised, those earlier stories. I, I um, only saved the stories that I thought could be um, um, could stand slight revision. There were, everything else needed major revision, and I didn't didn't even try those. But but they were revised, which isn't to say I updated them. Uh, but I I did clear out um, what I thought was defensiveness or insecurity, overstatement not trusting the reader, not trusting myself enough, not trusting the language enough. And so when they were revised, it was generally in that direction. And also I wanted to arrange the book so that it wasn't just a, you know, a gathering of posies um, or an anthology of stories. Uh, I wanted it to have the structure, if I could, of the inner rhythms and, and momentum of a novel and the variety of tempo and tone that uh, we require in a way of a novel. And I, and I tried to, uh, to place them side by side and in sequence so that could occur as well. It was more important. Those were more important to me concerns than, um, than putting them in a kind of archival chronology. Russell Banks, you mentioned the rhythm of a novel. 
And I, I wonder uh, how you feel, being both a novelist and a short story writer, about the two forms relative to one another. I know on, on, on the crudest level, people, junior high school level, I'm, I'm thinking, will say, well, the difference is a short story is short and a novel right. is long. Uh, that's mm. that's a, a starting point, but mm. it's hardly an end point right. when we look at these two forms. Right. You don't grow up if you, you know writing short stories uh, and then graduating write novels. I mean, they don't relate to each other that way. I don't think you learn how to write novels by writing short stories any more than you learn how to write short stories by writing novels. Bring to each uh, form such a different mindset and such a different requirement, you know, this almost morally or, or um, emotionally, that you have to approach it uh, with radically different, um, with a radically different mind. Some of the differences are, are, are involves, I guess, this, uh, in time. I mean, time or length, maybe, uh, they, they come to a somewhat the same thing. But um, I mean time in a very literal sense, uh, the flow of time. The novel, um, we experience a novel when we read a novel, and when we write one, the way we experience time, we can become immersed in it, and we don't know when it began, and we don't know where it's going to end. We live inside the float, you know, of time um, in a novel. Whereas with a short story, you can't. You almost can't forget the beginning. You have to hold it in your mind so that you can make sense of the ending when you get to the ending. I mean, we almost always remember the beginning of a story when we get to the closing paragraphs of the story. And we need to, otherwise the closing paragraphs wouldn't make sense. They depend for their Im impact entirely on that fact. That's what I think Poe was talking about when he said the proper length of a short story was but you could read it in one sitting, uh, long enough basically, but not too long to remember the beginning. Yeah, but there are a couple of short stories here, uh, The Fisherman mm -hmm. for one and uh, The Guinea Pig Lady, which... which about 70 some pages. You know. Yeah, the, those are a little bit too long to That's read a in long one setting. setting. <laughs> 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 but I, what I hope is that, yeah, I don't, I don't think the setting thing is what matters. I think it's the memory, uh, aspect of memory, retaining in your mind the images of the opening and the, and the, and the emotions that, that you had at the opening. And I think both those stories manage that. They, they stretch it pretty far and about perhaps as far as you can before it turns into something it's like a novella or a short novel. Partly that's because those two stories are very schematic and um, almost abstract. They're almost parable-like. And um, it's easier to hold in your mind images of a parable than it is uh, of a more realistically detailed story. I think one thing I've noticed in reading, in reading Angel on the mm -hmm. Roof is the variety of short story. We have mm -hmm. things that that to me, maybe I'm wrong, approximate autobiography. I'm thinking of the story Success Story and Mistake, which both take place first person in uh, Florida uh, when the person, the primary character is acting as window dresser, which you did. Mm -hmm. uh, then we have these longer parables. We also have these peculiar little vignettes set in and among both the present and the past. Mm -hmm. And they're very different from these other stories. And I'd like you to talk yeah. about the different kinds of short stories there are. Well, you know, I think what's going on in this book is what's basically gone on over my entire career as a writer is that I'm really moving through the various rooms of of the house of realism. I mean, I think we have such a narrow idea generally about what the possibilities of realism. But if you look around, you see most of the best writers of certainly of my generation, anyhow, have almost reinvented realism. And writers as diverse as, say, Don DeLillo on one hand and Joyce Carol Oates over on the other and Richard Ford uh, um, or John Edgar Wideman um, 
all use aspects of realism. Uh, they're quite remarkably different from one another. The range of, of narrative, of type of narrative that, that realism proposes for us, I think, is much wider than you know, we've normally um, agreed on. And, and so I still feel as though I'm working within the realist tradition, but I'm taking it from one side, which is almost out there where Nathaniel West uh, uh, worked, uh, to the other, uh, almost out there where Raymond Carver worked. And, and, uh, and I don't feel displaced in either case. I'm just in a different room. And it really depends upon the material that my imagination has locked onto. Uh, if it's locked onto the image of a fish, for instance, um, <laughs> somewhere in South Asia, swimming in a giant, uh, uh, a giant fish swimming in a, a shrinking pond, uh, then it's going to end up using that material in an allegorical mode. But if it's locked onto the story of a cow that got out because of the the man and a woman in upstate New York were drunk one night, a story that came to me actually by sitting in a bar in upstate New York, a woman telling me <laughs> how they ended up shooting their cow in a cemetery at three in the morning. <laughs> it's going to move to kind of like gothic comic realism. And, uh, you know, it just depends upon the material that's attracted me. Richard Lupo. Uh, Russell Banks, you keep using these wonderful phrases that just pop out. Gothic realism, gothic comic realism, I think you said. The house of realism, and yet uh, the use of fiction is, as imagination and allegory. This sounds paradoxical that you're talking about fantasy and you're talking about realism as if they were the same thing. Are they? I would only make a sharp distinction between fantasy on the one hand and engaged realism on the other. Um, some of these, these distinctions really just get rather arbitrary and are useful only in a, in a, um, a course catalog um, in a university and not in life at all. One of the pleasures uh, recent years for me uh, is that I've been able to stop teaching altogether and drop out of the university after years and years of being inside it as, a, as an academic. And once I stopped teaching, it was amazing to me how little concern I had for the canon, uh, for um, critical theory, for um, the kind of distinctions that, you know, that we all tend to draw between one type of fiction and another, and how much more interested I was instead on why the television set of my next-door neighbor was on at 5 o'clock in the morning. That was what really took me. Or, or the murder, why a man and how a man murdered his wife in the town next, uh, next to mine. But I understand what you're saying, and, and, I, and I don't want to confuse anybody, at least of all myself. I can only come down to it and say I'm most comfortable writing a kind of story or novel that allows me to engage language in a familiar way that's familiar to my ear and familiar to my mouth and allows me to tell stories about recognizable human beings, um, recognizable to me. And, and worthy human beings, worthy of my um, affection and, um, and respect. Uh, and that inevitably leads me to the conventions and the traditions that go with, uh, with what we call realistic fiction. You'll have to forgive me uh, for driving you back toward some of this literary theory, but there are, there are a lot of terms that are thrown around. Mainstream bestsellers, uh, popular fiction, serious literary mm -hmm. fiction, genre fiction, how do these things are, are these distinctions realistic or, or are they just artificial? Well, no, I think that there are ways of talking about a felt distinction that we all recognize but have a hard time describing without sounding um, either elitist or academic uh, or sometimes both. 
But I, I keep on, on remembering something I read years and years ago, actually, by Thomas Pynchon. In his introduction to his collection of stories, his only collection of stories, called Slow Learner, and he said, he said it, if I can phrase it accurately, he said, I take serious fiction, the term serious fiction, to describe fiction in which death is present. And the threat of death, mortality, another way might be to say it, when, when the reality of death is part of the condition of living. And I think that that ends up describing or applying, you could apply that to, um, you know, death is not present in a Stephen King novel. We, not, we are not afraid when we read it that we're going to die. We don't think about our life that way when we read it. It's escapist fiction. And um, it, no matter how many people die in the story, we're not afraid. It's not about death. It's about escaping death. And, uh, and a story by Joyce Carol Oates, uh, or I hope uh, by, by me, um, when we read it, we realize, my God, life is short and it's going to end. Mine is too. <laughs> and we're scared. And then the story is a way of comforting us. One element that I discovered in reading a collection of short stories versus reading a pile of novels, I noticed certain themes preoccupy Russell Banks one is the relationship of fathers and sons, uh, abuse, certainly, but also the idea that sometimes the relationship is skewered and we don't really know why a father and son or mother and son or whatever, why one comes from the other. I'm thinking specifically here of the stories that appear involving two characters named Buddy and Tom, Buddy the son, Tom oh, yeah. the father. Yeah. Uh, Chappie in Rule of the Bone is another. And the father and son, the father and daughter in The Sweet Hereafter. Right, and uh, there are several other stories uh, uh, that follow the same dynamic uh, that you're pointing to, that a relationship between a parent and a child who should love one another and do love one another nonetheless is, is somehow broken, aborted, uh, lost, um, destroyed in a way that neither person can identify. And their struggle together really is to try to identify it. And uh, it's a painful struggle. How did this go down the tubes? Um, and one is often resisting that reality too. I mean, that uh, the story of the father and son, Buddy and Tom, I mean, Buddy the son, this, the for him, the relationship didn't go down the tubes. What are you talking about, Dad? You know, <laughs> everything's cool. <laughs> the father is just so depressed to be with his son because he can't bear what his son does to him. Or another one, um, a story about um, a father and daughter, um, grown daughter. The daughter says, Dad, you know, you never got it. You just don't get it. You you always projected your own guilt and anger at mom onto me and and he he's he's the one who's in denial about the, the the breakdown of the relationship it's certainly central there but i think this is central to central to me personally in my life's experience um central to most americans life's experience in a way there our relationships are um such dynamic, uh, fluid, changing aspects of our life that um, that they take an inordinate, it seems at times, amount of attention from us just to keep track of, just to know what the hell is going on. You said American. Uh, it's, it's, it's the ones I know best. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, That's one, probably true of Norwegians too. <laughs> the Buddy Tom stories, there's a, a, several of them. They come from a collection called Trailer Park. Mm -hmm. 
they almost seem like riffs on the same theme. I'm not sure in one story whether Tom commits suicide, and in another one he definitely does. Mm -hmm. uh, they take place at different times in the same in the, in those lives, and 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 so both can be true. He did not commit suicide in one earlier, and then later did. Um, although I don't think they're in that order. Yeah, that's true. At times, you you know, you write a story, and um, the dramatic action is completed at the end of the story. The conflict, whatever, that was put forward at the opening is resolved by the end. And but you you, you still have this kind of after image or or echo um, of the voice of the story and the characters, and they they're still in my head. And and I want to return. And a number of stories I've done that. I've returned to the character in a different locale, different conflict, different time frame even, and um, and told another story about the same person. I've loved doing that. It's a way of not killing off your characters, I suppose, resuscitating them, bringing them back, giving them another uh, chance to walk through life. Would you talk a little bit about your own work process? There's, there's this black curtain that, that's drawn between the moment of inspiration and the moment of publication. What's going on behind that curtain? I've never heard it quite described that way. That's terrific. <laughs> Usually I'm just lying in my lazy boy listening to some tunes, but <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but in fact, uh, no, what's going on? Um, this, you mean the nuts and bolts of the process for me? Or Are you sure? You I mean, mean do, you know? do you sit down and, and plan a story yeah. extensively or, or do you just it sit really there varies, and let it yeah. flow? With a story, short stories, I tend to trust my moment-to-moment um, -moment decision making process and it's short enough so I don't feel I have to lay out in front of me a plan, um, a map uh, to keep from getting lost. With the longer work I do, I really do have to lay it out and, and otherwise I just lose myself and, and, and waste an enormous amount of time and energy going in, in what turn out to be into what turn out to be cul-de-sacs. But with stories, no. I, I, I work steadily pretty nearly every day, or four or five hours a day, and um, don't seem to um, need a break. I trust my intuitions. I don't want to say inspirations because I have no idea where they come from particularly, but um, usually if, if I start pulling on a thread, I, I, I can be reasonably assured I'm going to, um, to unravel something of consequence to myself. I mean, I, I, one of the things I learned over the years is that you don't necessarily become a better writer sentence to sentence after a few years of it, um, but you do um, become a little bit smarter about um, what truly interests you, what, what you have an abiding interest in, and what you have a gift for. So you don't waste as much time, really, as you get older. Um, I don't write the 150 pages of a novel to find out that I'm really not that interested in the character or I've taken the wrong point of view in the telling of this story. I used to have to write the whole damn thing to know that I didn't want to write it. Uh, if I am very, very lucky, uh, say a story like the first story in the book, Jin, it'll come to me almost ready-made, as that one did. Um, and that came to me in a dream, um, and which I sat down and then tucked into a drawer full of ideas and clippings and notes and went back to some years later, saw the, the notes on the dream and realized there was that was a story and in a sense proceeded to transcribe it, just set it down, or redream it, in other words, is what I did. It was there in about three days. 
and it's to me it's one of the cleanest, clearest, uh, most shapely stories in the whole book. Another story, The Plains of Abraham, about the same length, um, a very realistic story, a story that the uh, reader might think came straight out of my life because it's about a pipe fitter, uh, a guy in construction, set in a countryside of northern New York, uh, very much like where I live, people that I've written about before. And so that took me about six years to write. I started a draft, I threw it out, I started another. I could not figure out how to tell that story. And it wasn't until last uh, summer that I finally could sit down and um, and work out the problems. And they were really pretty much technical problems in that story. You've been listening to an August 2000 interview with the late novelist and short story writer Russell Banks, who died on January 7, 2023, at the age of 82, recorded while he was on tour for his collection of short fiction, Angel on the Roof. My co-host was Richard A. Lupoff. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. 